So welcome back to How AI Built This, um, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by the wonderful people at Cathcart Associates. Today on the show, I am speaking to Brian Mullins, um, CEO of Mind Foundry, an AI startup which spun out of the University of Oxford and focus on the implementation of ethical AI. Brian, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Liam. It's great to be here. No worries. Our first ever American guest, believe it or not. Is it? Well, I'm honored to be the first. I mean, we don't uh, we don't go too far out of the UK, to be honest. We've had one in Israel, and we interviewed someone in America, but who was English. So um, we've had we've we've managed to get over to the states, but not uh, speak to anyone from the states. Before we jump into Mind Foundry, ethical AI, and everything else that we will uh, no doubt get into. We kind of normally start around someone's background, kind of education, and from your LinkedIn profile and, and my extensive research, you did a, a bachelor's in engineering at the United States Merchant Marine Academy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Kings Point. It's in New York, in one of the five federal service academies in the United States. Amazing. So, how, how was that experience? Something you enjoyed? Uh, I did. It, it was uh, it was a really amazing experience. Um, you know, the the engineering was focused on mechanical and electrical engineering. The it's a federal service academy, so when you graduate, you're commissioned as an, an officer in the navy, or or you can transfer into one of the other services as well. And, you know, just just a really really interesting experience. Great education. You know, great great place to be from. Nice. And uh, were you from New York or did you go there for school? You know, I went there from school. I'm originally from California, grew up and lived most of my life in Southern California, but lived in New York during school and and for about about four years afterwards. So a really, really good time. Why would you ever leave Southern California? Like I'm including now in that in that question as well. Oh, uh, it's a great question. I mean, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty special place, but uh, I'd say Oxford's a pretty special place too. And and the opportunity to come over here and, and be part of an amazing team was pretty hard to resist. Uh, if only we had the weather, then everyone would live in the UK. I assume. <laughs> no one believes me that the the weather being perfect every day gets boring, and that the season. I, I, see, I, I don't refreshing. believe you either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, to be fair, I know what you mean. I, I lived in Australia for a year, and it's weird when it's like thirty degrees all the time. You need a break sometimes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And California is a lot like Australia, but no giant spiders or poisonous things everywhere trying to kill you. <laughs> um, and at least though, when it is hot in California, you have air conditioning as opposed to the UK recently when we've had our heat wave and no one is set up for hot weather over here. Yeah, the heat wave in the UK, it doesn't get nearly as hot as it does back in California, but uh, air conditioning is just nowhere to be found. Not the norm at all. And so there's just no respite, you know, in the, in the late afternoon, you're hot. And uh, so that, that's, I guess that I can, I can definitely understand that. Yeah, I spoke to a client recently that said that most of their engineering team were quite comfortable working from home, like after COVID, whatever happens. But then the heat wave um, brought a few of them back to the office because the office had air conditioning. But it was the only way they could get any work done was to come back into the office and get some air, <laughs> um, as opposed to sitting in their flat and, and getting cooked. Let's go into your kind of career a little bit. So you're kind of like an entrepreneur by trade, right? That you've done that, you've run businesses, been involved in kind of various different companies at a senior level for for quite a while. I have. That's right. I, I think there's a there's a period of time right before I was the first time entrepreneur where I was actually working at the Space and Naval Warfare Lab in San Diego. And, uh, and and working close with control systems and, and robotics and computer vision. And that really inspired me to you know, move into technology and, and kind of go deeper. 
you know, when I when I looked around and saw the opportunity that technology had to change the world, I, I knew at a pretty pretty early age that that I wanted to start my own business and and I wanted to use that as a platform to try and make some of those changes. I mean, I was going to ask you that. So uh, you've already kind of answered it, but uh, running your own business was a goal because we've had some people on the podcast where they almost became a CEO or a founder by accident or by chance. But yeah, that that was something you thought, yeah, I, w- I want to set up a business and, and do something cool with technology. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I um, I think I do have a little bit of a problem with structures and <laughs> and uh, fitting fitting within established structures sometimes, and and so it definitely made sense to to start my own thing. I I know I was very naive at the time and had no idea what that meant, and just h- how much work is involved with that, and and what what things are really important when you're building a company and when you're building a business, and and honestly when you're building any organization of and getting people together to solve problems, you know there's a lot to it. To make it successful, to to build a culture and a team, and and understand, you know how how to get where you want to go, and and so, you know, it, it wasn't easy at first, and and uh, you know sometimes when people are serial entrepreneurs, it's because you know they're they're failing a bunch of times <laughs> figured out, and uh, that certainly happened in in my early career, and and then got lucky and had some wins, and hopefully learned from all of them, but uh, it's definitely a good way to set your own course. Yeah, you kind of need a bit of, and there's quite a fine line because you do see a lot of people saying you have to fail as an entrepreneur, but then you do see some people that start a new business every six months and raise a bit of investment and then that company collapses and it just keeps happening and happening and happening. But there is a part of it where you do need to make some mistakes or even just, like you said, go into it with a bit of naivety and work some of it out as you go because you'll never be perfect. But yeah, you have to kind of expect to fall down a little bit. But like you said, as long as you can learn from it and uh, and kind of do well the next thing or, or kind of change what you're doing, then that's fine. Yeah, I think so. I think when we learn from from failure, we learn from edge cases. Um, you know, it's it's actually the hardest to learn from your successes, right? Because you just you think, oh well, obviously I did everything right, or you forget everything that went wrong along the way. Um, <laughs> it's easier to get a lesson when you're humble because you failed. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And so in terms of being on a show which is very loosely around data and, and kind of um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, whatever you want to call it, you you ran kind of like a, an augmented reality company for a number of years, raising a pretty kind of impressive amount of investment, had a, a really, really large team. How, like you said about learning from, uh, learning from failures as opposed to successes, how was that process of raising kind of millions of pounds, having a really large team in place? Was it, was it quite a whirlwind or did it grow kind of grow organically how did, how did you feel it went yeah that's a great question so uh, i i started that company and you know that journey was you know over 7 years in the making raised you know through venture private equity hundreds of millions of dollars built large teams you know just amazing experience amazing partners and and investors you know trying to make something new that hadn't existed before. One of, one of the coolest experiences um, of my life and honor to be there. And, you know, it's really, really fortunate and lucky to have great people around me that were, were helping to build something amazing. And it was on that journey that I, I found kind of my own personal mission, which was using technology to help people kind of reimagine the limits that they encounter in the world, whether it's their personal limits, whether it's limits from society or just, you know, things that we believe that hold us back. 
I loved augmented reality and still do to this day because of its ability to show people new things and, and to help them learn new things quickly. And I was always very optimistic that it could help us to keep pace with the change of the rest of the technology in the world, things like artificial intelligence and, and the things that, that I, I kind of saw at the time early in my career is, as things that were bad for humanity and, and that we wouldn't normally be able to keep up with without something like augmented reality. It's interesting, though, because at the end of that seven-year journey, and when I was fortunate to take time off and reflect, I realized it almost was for naught in that context because AI had just skyrocketed in that same period of time. It's, you know, it, it became ubiquitous. It was transforming the way that people work and, and what the future of work and, and, and really how we make and do everything was. And that was pretty profound when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. It was obvious that you couldn't stop something like AI. If you wanted to make it something that was for good, that could help people, you, you'd have to get involved and try to shape it and, and try to work within that revolution that was going on. That's pretty cool. I, I, we will touch on that a, a little bit more in a second. But um, just in terms of your experience with your previous company, when you were raising the investment, I don't know if you've had to do that in the UK. There's often talks of UK companies where they say that kind of raising money in America or, or in the States in terms of how they go about it. It's a lot more focused on helping the tech company and like taking a taking a gamble on someone's idea as opposed to over here where they really want people to have a proven idea, have some kind of annual recurring revenue. Like it's a lot, it's a different system. Have, have, you, had to, have you experienced both? Yeah, absolutely. Very, very different systems, very different, different I ideas. Well, this is probably uh, a, a very, very long discussion, having had a chance to raise money on both sides and, and see what the differences were. I think I'd sum it up by saying on in the U.S. market, um, obviously, there's a lot more venture capital and that's going to change the behavior. But there's also kind of a fundamental starting point where the investors start from what's possible with the upside. Where could this go? Yeah. And then along the way, they'll ask the questions and figure out, you know, what's the risk? What's the downside? And I think here in the UK, it, it starts out with a lot less venture capital, certainly a lot less coming from within the UK. And yet there's also this, this mindset where downside protection or, or considering the risk is first. Yeah. And then you get to what, what the art of the possible is. And, and it's in a way that I think needs to evolve a little bit. And that being said, we have, we have some amazing partners here in the UK and you get a lot more active participation here. I, I, I legitimately believe that the investors I've encountered here are more supportive because they don't have this, you know, blasé feeling about failure of, of companies in the portfolio, right? For every unicorn in the US, there's probably, you know, thousands of failed startups that go with it, you know, without hyperbole, probably thousands of failed startups that go with each unicorn and they don't care. That's part of the bet, right? They're betting yeah. the spread and, and one of them is going to take off and it's going to return the entire fund. Whereas here with a little bit different discipline and investment, they take a more active role. They're more selective. And, and I think that's, you know, partly because of the culture, partly because of uh, a smaller amount of, of funds to invest, you know, which one's better, um, maybe at different stages, different or better. You can go to a coffee shop in the US and, and bump into an angel round or, or you know, get an oversized Series A um, with a deck. In the UK, that doesn't happen. 
but then the wasteland doesn't exist that that spot between you know early investment and growth capital where the, even in the US there's no growth stage investor that's not starting with what's your revenue and and you know w- you know how, what's your cost to acquire a customer and you know how many customers are like it and you know the the nuts and bolts for growth equity are the same on both sides and yeah. so you get this kind of valley where you get lots of early stage companies funded in the US and then if they don't get to some kind of a- ARR number that's the magic number at that particular to- point in time nobody's going to help them cross that chasm right a lot lot more hands off until you get to the growth stage now that being said there's there's some great venture firms in the US that span from from A all through growth and and act a little bit different but i'd say the majority are kind of spray and pray with the investment there and and so uh, I think the jury's still out on which system's better. Uh, I'll know more later in my journey here, but uh, there's definitely strengths to bulls. I, I don't think easy money is better money. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And also, I like the way that you put it in terms that people maybe understand a bit more is that investment companies are literally just betting on a company doing well. That is that is what investment often is. So yeah, no, it's interesting. And it's a conversation we've had a lot on the show in terms of trying to raise investment in the UK. But quite often when I'm chatting to people off air or, or kind of when they are raising, they mention like the US model and how they would want it. But like you said, that's maybe just because they've not done both and maybe which one is better. Maybe there isn't a better way. And with augmented reality, just before we jump on to, to Mindfoundry, do you feel like it's still a bit of a untapped or a kind of untapped potential almost with with AR because I feel like there's been lots of different use cases and lots of people with really strong ideas but in day-to-day life for example it's maybe not quite taken off what how people maybe thought it might I, I think it's a good question um, because the perspective that the consumer gets you know that's spot on they don't see it right where, where do you see augmented reality in Pokemon Go Right. So still going strong, but but he, unless you're collecting monsters every day, it's not something that that you're regularly accustomed to. Maybe some features like in Google Maps, uh, you've got things popping up that that include AR views. The truth is, there is a lot of augmented reality going on behind the scenes in in industrial applications and government applications. You're seeing more and more of it, um, and and I think the crossover is actually going to be in in automotive, right? Where consumers are going to see it first because at some point in the next three to five years, they'll buy a new car and the head-up display won't just be static, you know, showing your speedometer and your windscreen. It's actually going to have AR functions in it. And then it'll go much like the cell phone did from being a car phone to something in your pocket. I, I think we're still still a ways out before there's a form factor that you can wear like a pair of glasses that that people will, will want to and feel good about and, and then will unlock an app ecosystem and, and kind of evolve the form factor. But I- until then, you know, it, it is going strong. It is, it is the moment for VR and AR both together are, are creating new ways to interact with technology. It's, it's kind of the new UI. Looking at a number recently on, on VR, because you could say the same thing about virtual reality headsets. Mm-hmm. Are, are people really adopting them? Yeah, 100%. And, the adoption curves faster than it was for video game consoles originally. Oh, and really? We just don't know it, right? And we're, we just don't have a really good parallel because you're not looking at those things side by side. But VR is actually doing pretty well. And, and I would expect it would continue to do so. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. Uh, that's a good point. And since you mentioned cars um, or, or kind of AR within cars or, or whatever it might be, do you think that, and we might get onto this when we talk about um, ethics and AI as well, but are we on the trajectory for driverless cars, given that your involvement in the kind of AI and that kind of world, I suppose? Because um, again, that's been promised for a long, long time. And we've talked about it on the show before that it feels quite far away. Yeah, I, I, it, it's simultaneously close and far away. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think I think in certain areas, certain circumstances and certain modalities, it's it's probably within reach. Um, I think certainly autopilot style functions in cars that I am driving the car, but the autopilot's gonna either do the work for me or or um or help me do it better, you know, that's what we're gonna see sooner. Yeah. And ultimately I, I do believe we'll get to self-driving vehicles. I just wonder if a lot of urban, suburban commuting might take a different form factor by that time, right? Are we going to be in electric quadcopter style vehicles that are all kind of ad hoc and summoned that are self-driving because they don't have to worry about driving on the roads. They can they can go into kind of tightly controlled flight patterns. Who knows? Maybe that that evolution happens faster. That sounds way cooler than a driverless car. I'm up for but, that. Yeah, but we've all been promised flying cars for a really long time. It's it's interesting you should a- ask about this topic, though, because there's a great story. For me personally, this is where I realized how closely connected you know, AR and AI were. And it was, it was in work around augmented reality, head-up displays and vehicles. And the question was, well, is this going to be relevant if the cars drive themselves? Why do you even need a head-up display? And the answer was really clear on the AR side. And it was the conversation between the car that, that is driving itself and the head-up display. You know, How do you have that conversation? How does somebody get comfortable that the car knows what it sees and can anticipate the moves that it's going to make? Because otherwise, we're in these self-driving cars and we're going to be terrified the whole time, right? But, but if the car, you know, with augmented reality, I can see you know, when the car is looking at something and there's an outline of, of the threat and, and there's lines on the ground telling me which way it's going to turn. So physically prepared to be jostled when it makes the turn or, or when it's going to break, I know why it's breaking because it can call my attention. Or if it needs my help, it can say, hey, you've got to take the wheel, but these are the threats that I see. So you need to respond to these. Right? That conversation is a way for the AI and the human to share a whole bunch of information and context very quickly. And, and it was that application that that helped me to understand just the power of humans and AI working together and, and, and that that could be something much more powerful than, than we think about when either of those are working by themselves or trying to compete with one another. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I suppose without a display, like you said, and, and not being prepared for turns and stuff, it would just be like sitting on a roller coaster, like without yeah. not knowing which way it's going to go. And that's much more scary when you're in a car. Nice one. Well, it was a bit of a whistle stop tour, but let's get on to Mind Foundry, where you've been CEO for I think just over two years. That's right. Let's kind of set the scene for for anyone that doesn't know who Mind Foundry are and kind of what they do. Yeah. Okay. So Mind Foundry um, is an an artificial intelligence company that spun out of the University of Oxford. It was founded by Professor Steve Roberts and Professor Mike Osborne. Um, who are, are professors at the university and had been solving problems with machine learning and, and artificial intelligence and, and developing technology for, for decades. And they had a vision that you could bring those things to the real world in a way that was 
much more accessible to people, not just a small group of companies, not, not just a small group of teams, but it was much more accessible. And it was done in a way that was responsible, that could, I think, be, in, be an alternative to what you were seeing in a lot of these cautionary tales with how data science and, and machine learning have been applied in a way that, that didn't have good results. And they wanted it to solve real world problems that were important. It, it was a pretty amazing vision. They, they put together a team, senior researchers and scientists that they had worked with in the university that were close knit and, and started solving pretty amazing problems. Um, uh, along the way, they they wanted to turn that into a platform, uh, a product platform that could scale and 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 grow as a business and and really take a life of its own. And that's what led to them looking for a CEO. You know, it, it was my luck that they wanted to look towards the U.S. and and West Coast tech uh, startup culture and really get somebody who might, you know, shake things up and, and bring new ideas that would complement what the, they were doing here already. And that's, that's when I met them a couple of years ago. I'd say I didn't, I, I'd never met them before, but certainly if, if you're in AI, um, you know their names, you know their work. Even if you're not close to AI, the series that The Economist did a few years ago on, on AI, you know, essentially taking your job and killing you and the future of work, <laughs> uh, you know, space based on, on work that Professor Osborne did. You know, Professor Robert, Roberts has been breaking new ground and, and creating technologies for decades. You know, he, he, it's, it's like getting to work with the, you know, celebrity scientists of the past, like Richard Feynman. You know, everybody knew who they were. I knew who they were. I definitely wanted to meet them. They're as, as humble as they are, brilliant. And they've just created this team of amazing people that that are very good at solving hard problems, but doing it responsibly and considerately. And and uh, they wanted to to make that into a platform that that could solve more problems and more importantly could help humans in organizations team up with the AI and solve important problems on their own. And and it took me about thirty seconds to decide I had to be a part of that. That's amazing. And is it quite, maybe? This isn't as rare as I think it is, but quite often with startups and, and spin outs and stuff like that, you end up with one of the founders becoming CEO by default. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But was it quite, do you think it's quite forward thinking of, of the two guys to think we should bring somebody from outside that has done something like this before, brings new ideas, isn't one of us running the company? I think so. I think um, you know there there was uh, you know kind of an interim CEO period where they were trying to feel out what you know what the best way to approach it was, and really what the heart of the company was. But I think that they always did have the realization that they wanted to bridge the gap between the work they were doing in the university and the work that that Mind Foundry was doing commercially, and that they they couldn't take on that role because of it. Yeah, this was a place to their strengths as well. They still get to do what they're very very good at. And they don't have to worry about running and spinning out a company and growing a team as much. Like they can still get involved in the parts, which is how they got here, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. Um, no, that makes sense. And a big part of, of Mind Foundry is around ensuring AI solutions are kind of ethical, free from bias. You'll be in a better spot than I am to to talk about this. But in in the industry as a whole, that's maybe not the standard approach. I mean, I'm sure people aren't trying to build things that are non-ethical and are riddled with bias, but they're maybe just not considering it. Whereas you guys kind of up front and center, that is a big part of what you guys do, right? Yeah, that's right. It's key to what we do. In fact, it's probably a good opportunity to tell you 
about our pillars and, and, and share what we think defines Mind Foundry. Um, we have we have three core pillars. We we start with the idea of first principles transparency, and that's Aristotle's first principles. You know the the fundamental from which all things are known. Right? If if ideas were atoms, what what's the smallest piece of ideas, and where are we starting from? And let's be transparent about that. Let's be transparent about what we know, what we don't know, how a model works. Um, let's use that to decide which models to work and how to apply them to a data set. Um, so that we can make something that can be a reliable and accountable part of the team. Our, our second pillar is human AI collaboration. And that's as much about the de- design philosophy of, of how you make it intuitive and how you make them collaborate as it is, you know, qu- quantifiable methods of how humans and AI will and should and, and can interact responsibly. Um, let me give you, give you an example of, of where that's important. Um, almost on a daily basis, we see customers who have high stakes applications of AI and their idea for safety is that they will have human in the loop for the decision-making. And you know anyone who's, who's very close to the industry knows that kind of a naive starting point and not to be insulting, it's just, it doesn't consider the fact that we know that the time domain that the machines operate within is very different than the time domain that the humans operate within. As a result of that, there are certainly things that the machine does better than the human, but they operate at different speeds and the humans can't keep up with the speeds that the machines operate at. And, and so human in the loop already is something that, that isn't possible. And the worst part is that as soon as they're, they deploy a system and they get comfortable with the system, you know, people go back to their, their day jobs, that project's over, it, it looks like a success. Uh, then somebody else comes along, sees that person in the loop who can't keep up with the AI and they automate them away because they look like a, 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 you know, a, a cost that, that can be saved. And now 100% of your safety consideration is gone, right? And, and so we believe that some of the agency of the system must be applied to understanding when and how to bring the decision-making and the context between the domain of the machines and the humans. And, and orchestrating that is the only way to make truly scalable systems that, that, we, can, that we can grow with in the future. And our final pillar is uh, continuous meta-learning. And that's as much about uh, human learning as it is about machine learning. It's, it's the concept of learning and learning about the learning process to get better at both of those things. And, and that means that you don't just make a model as a snapshot in time, put it online and just watch it slowly degrade until it's unusable, which is the standard practice today, right? We believe that, again, some of the agency of the system must be applied to understanding things like the cost of a false positive or the cost of a false negative and to balance those things against what is the intervention that is the result of a, this prediction? And if I get it wrong, what is the cost to the, to the people that are affected by it? And then also to balance that against the power cost and the carbon that's created in a system like that, because AI in and of itself is, is contributing to an increase in the use of power and, and carbon. And, and all of those things have to be balanced. And you have these highly intelligent machines that, 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 are, that are increasing in what they can do every day. And some of that agency in that system must be applied to helping you balance that complexity to have systems that can be truly in, in enduring and sustainable. And so those three pillars define everything that we make, who we are, who we work with, and they're very important to us. And, and now they apply in an industry like an insurance, you know, just, just for a full picture, um, you know, our two largest industries are, are insurance and 
uh, the public sector and working with governments where the, the decisions affect the citizens' lives. Yeah. But you look at insurance and where I come from, that's how you get access to basic health care, right? And so the other thing to remember is it's not about removing risk. It's about understanding it. If we can help our customers to understand their risk, then everyone can have insurance and the company can make money. It's not about removing the risk and not making the services accessible to people. And so everything that we can do with machine learning to take that type of calculation to the next level and to holistically consider the effect on the people, we think is, is somewhere that we can, we can make a difference. And, and to your point, it's right. They, um, you know, not all people in that industry approach it from a responsibility standpoint. Um, a lot of people just make something. They just try to make it work. And, and then they you know, hope there are consequences or deal with what comes up. And, and when people's lives, you know, when decisions affect people's lives or they're made at that population scale, we think that deferring the costs is, is way too much risk. You have to consider it from, from the beginning. Yeah, I remember one of the stories from the show that has always really stuck out. There was a guy that did some work in an insurance company a long time ago now, to be fair. Um, but he heard of practices where you could bump the price of someone's premium Obviously, you can't do it on a nationality because that would be racist, but you can do it on the length of their surname, for example. So they would, Eastern Europeans in this case were getting penalized because they had certain surnames that could bump their premium up. And that was all done through data. So yeah, like what you're saying, you can work with insurance companies to benefit them so they still make money, but also everyone else that, like you said, needs access to basic healthcare, for example. Yeah, that's right. Yes, it's pretty uh, it's pretty terrifying when you think of it the other way around. Like you guys are doing it in a positive way, but yeah, how many people do it the other way around and, and don't think of the consequences, um, which is quite a, maybe it's a rabbit hole not to go down. Probably, no, I, I mean it, it's an important rabbit hole. It's certainly one that we think about. I think I think you're right. There is there's a landscape, you know, in in the commercial world, whether it's insurance or or any industry really, where now that regulation is starting to take shape. Um, you know, it, it just exposes that that with regulators so far apart from the people that are creating the technologies or working with the technologies, that the regulation is not aligned with what people are doing. And, and so you can say things like you can't, you know, discriminate pricing based on, on ethnicity, but then, you know, there's a proxy signal in, like to your point, the length of the surname that could indicate nationality. Um, you know, likewise, age discrimination um, is an is an interesting case because you typically in insurance had non machine learning models. You had these human human models that had uh, you know ascertained that that young male drivers were not very good. <laughs> they were much more prone to taking risks, and yet the legislation around uh, any discrimination based on age means that's not a factor that can be used for assessing price, and so you know that you know fortunately the reputable companies in the world. You know they avoid it and and they follow the regulation and, and they they do what they they need to do. But there are uh, I'm I'm certain many players that uh, look for proxy signals. You know w- what else in the data will tell us who that same group is? And what they're really doing is they're using the machine learning to look for the age in in some other piece of data. Right? Yeah, what, they look for a job or like yeah. I don't know how how many years because I think they can ask how many years you've held your license. So that's an easy way to tell someone well to guess someone's age. Because yeah, I always remember when I passed my test at seventeen that everyone said, "Oh, wait till you're twenty five, your insurance will go down because you're no longer considered like a young male 
driving, um, yeah. which was which was infuriating and interestingly never happened. My insurance is still incredibly expensive, but that's 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 for another day. You mentioned regulation actually, which is quite an interesting topic. So the podcast we just released last week was around the topic of regulation and in industry, and the company we were speaking to were all for it. Actually, they they think it's a really good idea, and they felt that they're they're not alone, but they're not backed up by the entire industry where some people are maybe not opposed, but aren't too bothered about regulation. Do you think it would really help with stuff like unconscious bias, ethics, even just the general application of AI? Like, Would regulation help or would it, would it actually potentially cause more problems? Good regulation would help. <laughs> That's a good point. And, yeah. And I think... Um... Good regulation. The question is, how do, what's good regulation? How do we get there quickly? That would be better for everyone. It's, I, I think it's probably clear that it's inevitable that there will be regulation. Yeah. There's a lot of players that you know, say that they're pro-regulation or would be okay with it. But you know, let's be honest, there's a lot of lobbying going on, a lot of, lot of active anti-regulation going on because it's it's easier to work in in a wild west environment. I, I think that's I think it's kind of bad for for everyone, right? The people that are doing things the right way, if the reg- regulation was good, I think have the most to lose from the bad actors in the industry, right? It, it only takes one, you know, one meltdown to have you know kind of AI's Chernobyl style event, right? Mm-hmm. Where real people's lives are affected by sloppy data science that's done with off-the-shelf tools and, and there's major problems. And, you know, the, the events probably already happened. Um, regulators will regulate as a response to those things. Yeah. And if the industry doesn't help them understand what the right measured regulation is that's, that's regulating the important things, and it either is overreaching and, and stifles innovation or it is underreaching or off the mark and becomes irrelevant. Those are all pretty you know, bad outcomes, I think. Big problems to solve to get regulation done correctly. Like even just thinking about it now, talking between the two of us, who would do the regulation? Who enforces it? Who makes it up? Because the issue would be it's probably going to fall to government, right? But that's not a good idea, in my humble opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess, probably, my guess would be you're saying it's not a good idea because maybe they don't have the expertise that they need to make it, you know, on the mark and really measured response. Yeah, a lot of public sector and government stuff can be there can often be seen as being behind the curve. They're not, they're not experts in AI, so they would either have to employ someone who wanted to be the minister for regulation of artificial intelligence for lack of a better title but who's going to do that job and are they still on the ground are they still at the kind of cutting edge of innovation but also are doing it for the right reasons i think getting the team in place to do that would be a remarkably difficult job in itself yeah i I think that's spot on i think i think those problems combined with the legislative cycle just how long it takes to make a regulation yeah. And, and to update regulations w- would really put any effort in government on, on their, you know, on their back foot for a long time. I don't see a, a point in the future where, you know, the, the methods and trends in artificial intelligence stabilize to the point where, where those regulatory timeframes can govern, govern the use of AI in a, in a relevant way. I think that it's going to continue to be problematic, you know, for, for the near future. And yet, I think on the other side, self 
governance from within industry is usually heavily lobbied by people with the most to lose and, and becomes you know, in, ineffective at best and, and, and mostly toothless. Yeah. Um, and so so it, it's very hard question to answer within the system that we live in and, and wanting to affect real change. You know, what do we do? Um, you know, in my experience, the worst thing is nothing, right? And or not enough, which looks like nothing. And so if, a, if an industry group made regulations that were obviously not enough and something bad happened, there will be, you know, a response from, to some bad thing happening from the government that creates legislation that absolutely nobody wants. Yeah, like a, sna- like a snapshot decision because yeah. something bad has happened. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And if that happens, that's the worst outcome for everyone. Yeah. And so I, I feel like I feel like we need an, an, an industry movement to help inform what government regulations are and, and to be, you know, much more collaborative in that process for something to be effective. Right. And it would also have to be, and the reason it probably has to be a government level is because it'll have to be a unified kind of, whether it's the GA or whatever it is now, it has to be a unified response from many, many countries. Like it can't be the UK government have regulated AI, but then you would just get companies who would sprout headquarters up in Switzerland because they don't have it or in the Caribbean because they don't, they don't believe in the regulation or whatever it might be. Like you could get around it. Whereas to, for it to really to work, you would have to have all the kind of so-called big players on board, I would have thought. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think the other kind of hidden problem to regulation is going to be that most products that have some form of artificial intelligence won't be an AI product, right? There'll yeah. be a product that has a feature that's got some AI behind it, and it'll be hard to identify, and mm. and it'll be hard to detect, you know, when when people are are doing things that they shouldn't do. That's probably the real problem. I think I think the majority of the use that's high risk is when somebody who doesn't fully understand it. Uh, applies the increasingly easy to use off the shelf and open source tools in a way that, you know, you have data that isn't compatible with a method and shouldn't be used to make a type of decision with an intervention that has the direction that, that requires something that, with high stakes uh, yeah. considerations in it. And, and, and all of those things, you know, they're just going to slip through the cracks when they're a feature in somebody else's product that doesn't actually do, you know, isn't advertised or doesn't, doesn't do you know, AI or machine learning um, as a primary feature. Yeah. Yeah. The problem, one of the biggest problems with AI and machine learning just now is probably how easy it is to do. Because that's, I mean, a lot of the techniques are nothing new. We just never had the compute power or the open source tools. And now it's becoming, like you said, kind of increasingly easy for people to do some sort of interesting work with data. But yeah, maybe missing out some key parts, like you said. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, when you said that too, I, I, it occurred to me I didn't didn't kind of do the the disclaimer on well, what what's machine learning, what's AI, you know, what do we mean by these terms? And and I I think we take a very pragmatic approach at at my foundry, uh, very much uh, probably inspired by the Oxford English Dictionary that usage trumps grammar. And in the industry, you know, there's a tendency to be very pedantic about the specifics of the term and uh, how you describe the methods. But I think the majority of people today, you know, maybe it wasn't true three to five years ago even, but the majority of people today see AI as the super category and they just, they refer to it colloquially as any time you have this 
you know, machine intelligence of any kind that's making decisions or, or starts to have some form of agency. So I'll use that term certainly, you know, uh, as the super category, um, which, which may be worth pointing out uh, yeah. a lot of these methods, you know, you, you know, so, sometimes you're talking about machine learning, sometimes you're just talking about, you know, analytic methods, but they all have a kind of a same undertone that, that we're letting the machines, you know, have some agency about these decisions and, and we need to consider what the impact is going to be. Yeah, no, 100%. We're fast running out of time. But one last thing to touch on, you obviously ran a company for a number of years, very successful, built the team. You've joined MindFoundry now for a couple of years, which started with, like you said, two of the kind of most renowned people in the in the field. And the team around it that you've built seems from the outside looking in pretty kind of world class already. Is there some? Is there anything you've learned over the years, kind of building teams, trying to find the right people, or, or if you were starting out again, is there anything you would do for sure that's kind of helped you along this journey? Oh yeah, that's probably one of the most important pieces of advice for any any growing or startup you know company is um, that people are the most important part, right? If you don't have the right people, you won't build anything. Right. They, there's a there's an old expression, you know, if you want to if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, bring a team. And it's it's very true. And, and I think if I had to boil it all down, oh, this is such a good question. I talked about this one for a long time. If I had to boil it down, one of the one of the most important lessons I've learned is that it's better to have too few people than one wrong person. Hmm. Right. If you get the wrong people, they don't help. And I know, I know. Trust me, anyone listening to this is starting a company. I know when there's too much work and you need more help and you need more people, you think that just get somebody. And I promise you the wrong somebody is much worse than, than being overloaded and having too much work to do. Um, take the time, find the right people, make sure that they're going to be successful both you know, in what they're able to do, but, but also that they're going to fit into the company, that, you know, that they you know, want to do the things that the company and the other people on the team want to do. You know, I don't mean want to do in their work. I mean, like, why are we here? You know, how do we want to change the world? Do we believe the same things are possible, you know, here on this team? And those are the things that will tell you if, if a candidate is going to blend in well with the culture and, and, and help, help make it better and, and help you get farther. Um, yeah. And, and getting the wrong person on a team is one of the most destructive forces, one of the hardest things to, to contend with. Yeah. And, and, you know, it doesn't mean that there's, you know, good people or bad people, but some people don't believe the same things you do and they're just not going to work on your team. Yeah. No, it's one thing we've talked about a lot, actually, when we talk about kind of hiring and, and recruitment and startups or scale-ups, especially when you go from, we're a small team, everyone's pulling in the same direction, but now we need five extra people when you start hiring a scale it's so important that you don't make those mistakes because you've you've got the foundations of something really special and like you said one bad person can can ruin all of that work whereas maybe if you work at a huge government department or financial services company you can almost get away with some bad hires because the company is just so large there's so many things going on but when you work at a small company you're speaking to the ceo you're speaking to the most junior member of staff you're speaking to the marketing team like everyone needs to be on the same page yeah 100 percent. i think if I mean, you probably say the same thing about any company any team of people 
you know, getting people aligned is the most important thing. And even even if you're big, even making an exception, you know, I, I think it makes you less able to achieve your objectives. You know, when I look at tech startups, you know, we're building technology. How much of it's going to be the same a year from now, right? Two or three years from now, almost none of what you're building today is going to be as relevant as it is right now. It may not even be relevant at all, but you know what will? The people, if you get the right people, right? So the most important thing you can do is invest in your people. Yeah. And I think hearing a CEO talking about that is quite powerful as well, because it's one of the things I try and say to any of our kind of growing startup, scale-up clients, that the top have to be bought into recruitment. And that doesn't necessarily mean reviewing CVs or being on every interview panel, but recruitment needs to be the number one priority for most companies and technology just now. And it needs to trickle down from the top. There's no point in if the CEO and the management team aren't bought into it, then you're never going to get the right people, in my opinion. Uh, absolutely. If if you have a, a candidate journey in your company where you know people who go through it, and and even if they're not the right fit, but uh, they you know when it's over, they want to work there even more, and and everybody enjoyed the experience and appreciated each other's time. Like that. That's that's how you want the whole team to be involved with. And that's the experience that you want the candidates to have. If you don't put a lot of thought into it, if the management team is not bought in, if people don't invest in the people, you know, you'll see people will have a horrible experience. You know, they'll phone it in, you'll get candidates that aren't aligned. And, uh, you know, you just, you'll never really be able to build the thing that you want to. Yeah. And uh, yeah. It's- yes. It's almost more interesting to look at the people that don't quite make it past the final stage and ask if they had an enjoyable experience. Cause they're the people that, you want them to leave with a positive, a positive experience, and they might come back in the future, or they might tell their friends, or whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's exactly right. I would always look and say, you know, the people who who got to a late stage, what was their experience? You know, did, did, did they appreciate it, even though it didn't work out, and that can be that can be painful and 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 stressful. Um, you know, were they treated with respect? Did they, you know, what what impression did they have? Were the people, you know, in the company? invested in in the in the recruitment and in, and in finding somebody for the team and would um, they reapply in the future is probably a really important question because if not then something's kind of something has went wrong i suppose yeah that's right i mean these people are giving their time and and you know thinking about you know joining a company and working there that's a huge investment like the only mm. thing we have in our lives is time you know yeah. it's so important to consider these decisions from both sides yeah also becomes um it's hard in the job you do because you've hired a lot of people and it's hard in the job I do because that's what we do day in, day out. But you kind of forget that changing job for a lot of people is one of the biggest things they'll ever do. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's right. Especially people who may move from non-startups to startups. It's yeah, even it's a huge more gamble. Of a mo- monumental change, yeah, because there's no there's no such thing as, as any kind of certainty. I mean, there's probably no certainty in any company, but but with startups that the equation changes quite a bit and uh, they have to do it, you know, not because they're looking for a stable job, not, not because they're just looking for a paycheck. They have to do it because they, they believe in, you know, in the mission and what the company is trying to do. Mind Foundry, our mission has been really helpful in, in helping us find the right, right, you know, people to join the team. You know, if they think it's important to create a future where humans and AI can work together to solve the world's most important problems. You know that's a great starting point. If they don't, if it's if it's just a paycheck, you know, 
it's probably not the right place. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think it's a good place to leave it. Um, uh, thanks so much for the time, Brian. I really do appreciate it, and it's been it's been really cool to to kind of talk about your your background and what Mind Foundry are doing. And it'll be really interesting to kind of keep an eye and, and see how the company progresses. So, no, thank you very much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. Actually, it went by in a blink of an eye. So uh, it's great, great to be here. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.